Good morning. Happy New Year's Eve, Eve. I think I got that right. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to the book of Acts. I know we haven't been in Acts, and you're probably thinking, why are we going there? I thought we would just take a look at the life of Barnabas through the Acts of the Apostles for this New Year's Eve Eve. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father, as we uh, go into a new year and finish up the present year, we pray that we would finish well in the last couple days and that you would empower us to live even more for you next year than last year, that you would cause us to turn more from sin in 2019 than we turned in 2018, that we would be more in love with you, more committed to your word, more committed to the advancement of your kingdom, that you would empower us by your spirit to live in such a way that you are glorified through us. And Father, as we look at the life of Barnabas, I pray, Father, that you would encourage us through him and that we might make wise steps, wise resolutions for the new year. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, it's at this time of year that people often make New Year's resolutions. We make these commitments that we're going to better our lives, better our commitments to Christ, better our commitments to family, make better choices. As I thought about resolutions, I thought about a few silly and sassy ones and a few serious ones as well. One particular guy said, the next year I'm going to be more assertive, if it's okay with the rest of you. One gal said, uh, well, I'm going to have to really build up my self-esteem, but I know I'm going to fail at it. One particular gal called her parents up and her dad answered the phone and she said, dad, what is your New Year's resolution? It was an incredible one. He said, I'm going to make your mother, my wife, the happiest woman on the planet. That's a pretty high standard. Later, she caught up with her mother and she said, what's your New Year's resolution? She said, to help your dad fulfill his. <laughs> That's a pretty wise woman. A resolution that I try and follow is this. What would happen if the average American, the average American Christ follower, we're willing to regularly go out to lunch or coffee with someone of a different political persuasion and listen rather than argue. What might happen in our country if we had Christ followers or politicians or everyday individuals who would listen 
rather than always argue about their political convictions? Might we not grow just a little bit? Another resolution I think of often is to find a command in Scripture, a passage in Scripture that I know that I'm not fulfilling, I'm not obeying, I'm not honoring. And to say, Lord, for the next 365 days, I'm going to try each day to pray about that command and ask you to empower me to obey it, to honor it, to live by it. I wonder what would happen. Or maybe it's an individual, an individual that we haven't been really cozy with, we haven't been kind to, we aren't reconciled with, and maybe the Lord says in 2019 that I can take steps, I ought to take steps to reconcile that relationship, even if it means that I have to humble myself And of course, I'm right. And humble myself to the person who, of course, is wrong to reconcile a relationship. I wonder if God would have me do that. Or maybe it's to address a vice in my life and ask someone to bring me to accountability to overcome a certain vice Enough of thinking about it, enough of talking about it, enough of dreaming. Maybe it's time that empowered by God's Spirit, I attack that vice. I think resolutions can be good if a few things occur. We only do one or two, not eight or ten. We build accountability into our life and we pray about it on a regular basis, and it's more than just a one- or two-week exercise, we're committed to it, and it's God-centered. As I think about resolutions, I think about a man named Dr. Edward. He was one of the great theologians of our country, Jonathan Edwards. He was born in 1703, died in 1758. He made five resolutions, not just for one year, but for his life. These were the resolutions made as a child that he decided to live by. He said, I'm going to seize the hour. I'm going to seize the day. I'm not going to waste time. I'm going to be committed to the time that God has entrusted to me. I'm not going to hold grudges. He said that I'm going to make sure that whatever I do, if it were the last hour of my life, I would not be ashamed of being found doing it. He said I'm going to resolve not to do to others what I despise when they do it to me. And finally, he said that I will be profitable in life. And for him, that wasn't monetary. That was spiritual. Those are pretty good resolutions made when he was a young boy 
that he renewed year after year as he lived out his life. The truth is we make resolutions so we won't have regrets. We make resolutions so that we better ourselves, so that we are more like Christ desires in 2019 than we were in 2018, and certainly more than 2017. That's why we make resolutions. And as I think about a guy who models five resolutions that I need to imitate, I thought about Barnabas. Barnabas has at least five things going on in his life through the book of Acts that I think are worth me imitating, and perhaps you as well. We pick up in the life of Barnabas in Acts chapter 4. I want to read verses 36 to 37. Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. There are several things we want to notice. First, we notice his career choice. He's a Levite. Now, sometimes some of these career choices in the New and the Old Testament, they confuse us. What exactly is a Levite? A Levite is essentially an assistant to the priest and a vocational musician. I would say a Levite, if I were to term it today, is a worship pastor. That's what a Levite did. He would serve a local synagogue, a local church in their community, and then some of the Levites, notice the word some, some of the Levites annually would be given a two-week stint at the big house. The big house is the temple. It would be an honor to serve as a worship pastor, 12 or 1,300 Levites at a time for a two-week stint at the temple. But notice I said some. You see, he's from Cyprus. Cyprus is in the Mediterranean. It's a Mediterranean island, often thought of as a Turkish island, sometimes independent, often thought of as European, but occasionally thought of as Asian or even Middle Eastern. But herein lies the rub. At this time in Israel's history, a Levite from Cyprus would never get the opportunity to serve at the big house. Prejudice is ugly at any time of history, and there would have been prejudice to keep this particular Levite from serving a two-week stint annually as a reward for his service. He would have been bypassed time and time and time again. Prejudice is ugly at any time in history. And notice Again, he's a Levite. Now think with me strategically. When the Jews enter the promised land and they take the land of Canaan that God had promised them, God divided up the land based upon tribes. And at that time, there were 12 tribes. You know that eventually we're going to get to 14 through a number of divisions. But we have 12 tribes 
and you remember that 11 of the tribes get land. One tribe does not get land. They are to be dispersed among the people, more down at the temple, but all over the nation. They don't get land. They have to rent land. They have to borrow land. They have to be invited on to someone else's land, and that's Levites. In other words, if you're a Levite and you have land, you're a rare Levite. You have somehow probably not inherited the land because there was no inheritance at this time for a Levite to get. You probably have saved and somehow bought land. For a Levite to have land is a rare thing it's a special thing. And what does the text say? He sold the land and took some of the money and laid it at the feet of the apostles. Now that phrase, laid at the feet of the apostles, is kind of a phrase that means something special. It doesn't mean that the offering basket was at the feet of Peter and you walked up and threw your money in. It doesn't really mean that. It might visualize that in your mind, but that's not what it means. It's a phrase that means that you gave without any attachment. You didn't give in order to get. We don't have Levi saying, I'll tell you what, uh, Joseph the Levite, saying, if I give you this land, if I give you the money from the land, I want my two-week stint at the big house. You guys have been shirking me. You, you guys have been jerking me. You haven't been treating me well. That's going to end right now. I'm going to give you land, but you're going to give me. It's not like that. He doesn't have his name in a pew Bible. He doesn't have his name in a plaque in the hall. He's not saying, I'm going to give in order to get. He's just laying the offering at the feet of the apostles that they might use it to advance God's kingdom. And in the New Testament church, which then excludes the Gospels because that's kind of intertestamental, in the New Testament church, the first recorded giver that we have that we know by name is this man from the island of Cyprus. And he gives without attachments. Barnabas means son of encouragement. And I want to be encouraged by his life, and I want to be encouraged to imitate his life and to also be a giver to advance God's kingdom. The next time you and I meet Barnabas is in Acts chapter 9. Now, if you know anything about Acts chapter 9, you know that it's really not about Barnabas. It's about Saul, Paul. Now, Saul is really his Roman name, but it's a Jewish name, Paul is a Gentile name. So sometimes people say, well, he was Saul until he came to Christ and then he was Paul. That's not actually true. The book of Acts would tell you that's not true. He takes on the name Paul when he goes among the Gentiles as a way to assimilate among the Gentiles and to preach the gospel. Well, in Acts chapter 9... Saul, Paul, is on the road to Damascus. He's on the road to Syria, which we read about all the time now in the news. And he's on this road, and suddenly 
Jesus appears to him, blinds him, which I think is a picture of his spiritual blindness. I think it's reality. He's blinded, but it's a spiritual picture that he's been blinded to the things of God. And you remember that he has papers from the high priest. He has papers allowing him to put to death or to imprison any Christ follower, anyone who serves the way, a phrase for Christ. And suddenly he realizes, hey, I can't earn my way to God. I've been trying to earn my way by pleasing God, by putting out what I consider to be a sect, what I consider to be a cult. And in fact, all my good works are as filthy rags. I, you, me, we cannot earn our way to the Lord. And he comes to a saving knowledge of Christ. Let me read about what this Saul Paul is like. Acts 9, 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters at the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This guy is not a good guy, but God. But God. God rescues Saul Paul. God appears in the personhood of Jesus Christ to Saul, Paul. And Saul suddenly realizes he can't, you can't, I can't, we can't earn our way to heaven. And all of our good works are as filthy rags. And he spiritually, his eyes are opened even though he's blinded and he realizes his need for Christ. He realizes his need for a redeemer, and he understands that Jesus is the redeemer, the one who came fully God, took on human flesh, the God-man, lived a perfect life, and then died as a payment of sin. Not his own, but mine, yours, ours. And he comes to Christ. And you remember exactly what happens next. They put up a white rose in the church and everyone claps and they welcome him into fellowship. Except that's not what happens. God comes to a man named Ananias. We don't know much about this guy. And God says to Ananias, go to Paul. He's mine. He's mine. He's been rescued. Go to him. And do you remember what Ananias says? I love this. Because Ananias probably believes that God is omniscient. He knows everything in the past and the present and the future, even the what might have been. We all kind of believe that, except when we want to challenge God or when we don't like God's plans. Well, this is what Ananias says. Chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. God says, Ananias, go to Paul. He's mine. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. He's got a bad rap sheet. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. In other words, what he's saying, and he's representing the church, not just himself. He's saying, you know, I know you know everything, God, but if you don't mind, we're just going to have a little time. This could be a ruse. It could be real. We don't know. Three days ago, he was murdering people. Three days ago, he was throwing people in prison. Three days ago, he was dragging people. 
from Damascus, Syria, all the way back to Jerusalem. So maybe a little bit of time, just to be sure that you get this right, God. A little bit of time will pass, and, and if, he, if he walks the straight and narrow, we'll put up that white rose, we'll clap, and we'll welcome him into fellowship. And if you read the chapter, it's not just Ananias, it's the whole church. I mean, who would be stupid enough, A, to believe God, and, and B, to take a chance on a guy like Saul Paul. Who would be that stupid? Barnabas. That's who. Let me read from chapter 9, 26 and 27. And when he, Saul Paul, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple, but Barnabas. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road, that is the road to Damascus, he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. No wonder they call him Barnabas, son of encouragement. He actually believes in justification. That when we pray and receive Christ by faith, we are declared righteous. And the old is gone, and behold, all things become new. He actually believes that. And he believes in progressive sanctification. That if somebody is walking with the Lord, they will be more godly tomorrow than they are today, more godly next week than this week. And as I turn into the new year, I want to be like Barnabas. I want to believe that I serve a God who truly transforms lives, who truly takes people out of darkness into light, and who takes new Christians, baby Christians, immature Christians, fallen Christians, and helps us incrementally to take the next step in our relationship towards Jesus Christ. I want to be like Barnabas, who believes that God does work, is working, can work, and believe that that in the midst of that, we can have a part of helping someone take the next step in their relationship with the Lord. Well, the third time we meet Barnabas, perhaps, is in Acts chapter 11. This one's a little iffy. Acts chapter 11, 20 to 21. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus, and Cyrene. Does that include Barnabas? Well, we'll talk about it. Who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. Hellenists are Jews that act like Greeks, that act like Gentiles. They don't read Hebrew. They speak Greek, probably Koine Greek, and uh, they don't keep kosher kitchens. So some of them from Cyprus and Cyrene, who are coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. <coughs> and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Does this refer to Barnabas? I don't know. I, I think it probably does. He was the most prominent man from Cyprus. The early church thought that he was one of those included, but we don't know for sure. But if he was, then he shared salvation by faith in Christ. 
He believed that there was nothing more important than the transforming work of Christ in the life of another. Now please understand, he doesn't see people as targets. He doesn't see people as notches in their belt. He sees people as people. Eternal souls. People who matter made in the imago Dei, in the image of God. And he desires that they come to Christ. He believes what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he, the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, who never sinned or knew no sin to be sin for us, that through him, through faith in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And the verse just preceding it says, we are therefore, this is speaking to Christians, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were speaking through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be ye reconciled to God. It becomes our obligation to share the hope of Christ that is within us with others. Not seeing people as targets, not seeing people as notches in our belt, but seeing people as we really are, in need of a Savior. And so I wonder, I wonder as we turn into 2019, if all of us could think of one or two people that really matter to us. All people should, but some that really, really matter to us that don't know Christ. And if we could bring that name before the Lord in prayer each day for the next year and take some time somewhere in there not to be judgmental but to say, you know, Christ saved me, a sinner in total need of salvation. And sin is any attitude or action, thought, motive, or inactivity Christ saved me because I believed in Jesus. His death as a payment of my sin. His resurrection as the evidence of eternal life. And I want to share the hope that is in with me, with you. That would be like these men of Cyrene and Cyprus, perhaps like Barnabas. And if it is Barnabas, what a man of encouragement a man who encourages me, you, to share the hope of Christ within us. The fourth thing I noticed about Barnabas is this. It's kind of scattered in a few places. But Barnabas truly believes that God is preeminent and he is not. As you're probably aware in both the Old and the New Testament, a Hebrew mindset would list the tutor first, the rabbi first, the teacher first, and the disciple second. That's not saying one is superior to the other. That's just how they would order it. We might do that. We might not. We might go alphabetical. We might do one gender in front of the other or the other gender in front. We have all sorts of ways that we order, but a Hebrew mindset would would place the discipler first, and the disciple second. I think my friend, Pastor Andrew, has this mindset. He's always saying, 
Andrew and Jeff, the big A and the little J. Yeah, you can tell him I said that. He's away right now, but that's how he, he believes he is. But I'm humble enough to roll with it. Well, we see the same thing in the book of Acts. In Acts 13, verse 2, we read this. While they, and some of the manuscripts actually list their name, like the, uh, the ESV, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said this, set apart for me Barnabas listed first, and Saul, for the work which I have been called to. In Acts 14, 1, it says, At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. You'll notice the order. First, it's Barnabas and Paul. Then, it's Paul and Barnabas. You see the switch? You see, initially, Barnabas is the teacher. Barnabas is the tutor. Barnabas is the rabbi, he's the instructor, and he disciples Paul. But somewhere along the line, God switched it. God switched it. And you can imagine what Barnabas did. He naturally threw a hissy fit. He threw his Bible across the room. He used some language that probably needs a bar of soap. I mean, he threw a fit, found another ministry. He was not going to be engaged anymore. How could God do this to him? But he didn't. He didn't. He just went along with it. He recognized, in fact, he blessed God to raise up his disciple as now his disciple. This would be like somebody who's on like a a worship team who suddenly sees somebody who maybe brings people into music worship more effectively than one does. And so one takes a back seat, doesn't get angry, finds other areas to use her or his gifts and blesses the Lord to raise up someone else. This would be like a Bible teacher who has taught a class for a long time and, and suddenly realizes that somebody who has been in the class is actually a more effective communicator of biblical truths. And, and so they find spots for that person to teach and that person to lead. And rather than holding on to a position in the church or an office in the church, one says, Lord, I bless you to raise up someone who you've empowered to be more gifted than I am in that area of ministry, and I bless you to use me in another way. That's exactly what Barnabas did. I love this about Barnabas. Let me read Acts 13, 13. Now Paul and his companions, Barnabas doesn't even get any any recognition. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So Barnabas doesn't even make the list, but John does. Who is John? Well, John is Barnabas' nephew, and he doesn't make the verse because he's done something good, but because he's done something bad. You remember we're on the first missionary journey. 
It's a long journey, AD 46 to AD 48. It'll cover planting churches in Turkey, probably Ephesus, and Colossae, maybe Laodicea, and Lystra, and Derby. It'll cover planting churches in Greece, maybe in Corinth and Athens, and up in the Galatia region. It'll include planting churches on the island of Cyprus. It's a 10,000-mile journey, a good solid two years. And a little more than halfway through it, they're in Galatia. And Galatia's hard. This is virgin territory. It's not dotted with Christian churches. In fact, there are no Christian churches at all. It's dotted with bandits and it's malaria infested. It is a difficult region. And John Mark is a young man. He's an adult, but he's a young man. And this has been a long trip. It's like year two starting of a two-year journey, 10,000 miles. He's been away from home. And he finally says, this is not what I signed up for. This is a little much. And he abandons them. And he heads home. And Paul and Barnabas are left to do the rest of the work without the third person. It was a team of three, and now it's a team of two. And a few years pass. They've gotten a little rest. And Paul contacts Barnabas and says, hey, let's go out on another trip. Pack your backpack. And Barnabas says, great. I'll Snapchat John Mark. I'll tell him to to pack his Delcy bag. We'll find some good really nice B&Bs in Ephesus. We are heading out. And you remember what happened. Paul said, did you just mention John Mark? <laughs> no, no, no. Desert me once, shame on him. Desert me twice, shame on me. There is no way John Mark is going with us. We gave him a chance. And he blew it. He signed on the dotted line and he abandoned us. He is not going. Wouldn't you love to have been a fly on the wall? (laughs) I know what I would have said to Paul if I had been Barnabas. I would have said, hey boy, let's go back to Acts chapter 9. Nobody wanted to talk to you. Nobody believed in you. They didn't know if the conversion was real or a ruse. And God couldn't even convince Ananias. And then by the time you get to Jerusalem, none of the disciples are yet convinced. And I put my neck out for you. I believed in you. I believed in justification. That the old is gone. Behold, all things are new. I believed in sanctification. That you are better tomorrow than you are today. Better next week than this week. I believed in you. And you don't believe my nephew, John Mark, you're not going to give him a second chance? Now, I have no idea if Barnabas said all that, but I would have. He's more sanctified than me. And you remember what happened. John Mark and Barnabas went in one direction, and Paul and Silas and Timothy and others went in another direction. Barnabas wouldn't kick John Mark to the curb. He believed that God could do great works. You remember how the whole account ends. 
We go down the road a few years. It's now 64, 65 A.D. Paul is in the prison for the last time. This time he really will be a martyr. And he writes these words. Luke is with me. Send for John Mark. I need him. He's helpful. The one he wouldn't take on the trip is now the man that on death row, Paul desperately needs to be there in his corner to bolster his faith, to encourage him, to surround him. Send for John Mark, who, by the way, loses the name John and goes by the name Mark, the author of the second gospel. The guy who deserted was used by God to write the gospel of Mark. Would that have happened without Barnabas? A son of encouragement, a son who believed in justification. The old is gone, behold, all things are new. Believed in sanctification, that we can be mess-ups. And I know some of us, we can be mess-ups, and yet there's a future. When I think of Barnabas, I think of a man who gives generously. He lays his gift at the feet of the apostle. I think of a man who believes in second chances. I think of a man who shares the gospel. I think of a man who who believes that God, not Jeff, is preeminent. And he blesses God to raise up someone who is more effective than himself. When I think of Barnabas, I think of what I need to be and become in 2019. Resolutions. There's a lot of good ones out there. Barnabas has offered a few by his lifestyle. What does God want you, me, us to become in the next year? And what is the plan to get there. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for Barnabas, uh, a man we know very little about, but what we know is so appealing and so worthy of imitation. I pray, Father, that as we go into the new year, we would take on, even to a greater degree, some of the characteristics of Barnabas. Father, none of us are even close to being finished works. We're all products in a process. Some of us need to take the next step by truly believing in Christ. And for those who that is true, I pray that they might believe, as we all must, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And by faith, ask your son Jesus to come into one's heart, to forgive, to cleanse, to be Savior and Lord. Others of us, for our next step, we need to be more serious about a sin area or an area of neglect or perhaps one of these characteristics in the life of Barnabas that we need to sharpen. 
Father, there are some very mature Christ followers here and some less mature and some brand new and some who do not know you. I pray, Father, that each of us would take the next step in our relationship with you. And that in 2019, we would be more kingdom-centered than we were in 2018 as a church, as families, and as individuals. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.